Hello, and welcome to Morning Energy Live. I am your host, Andrew Gillick, and today I have the pleasure of chatting with Naomi Bonus. Naomi is the Managing Director of the Natural Gas Initiative at Stanford University, where she conducts research on natural gas and how to maximize its environmental, social, and economic benefits. She is also, and why we're here today, Co-Managing Director of the Stanford Hydrogen Initiative. We'll get all that, what all that means in a minute, uh, but Naomi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so before we jump into hearing about how you leverage your traditional energy background to be a thought leader in the global energy ecosystem, I'd like to ask you a few questions so our audience can get to know you a little better. Does that work? Love it. Okay. So first, what is the first concert you ever went to? I was a late bloomer. So the first concert I went to was actually a festival when I went to university, and it was called V97. So it was Virgin, Richard Branson's organization, oh. Virgin, held a big, it was like, imagine like a scaled down Glastonbury. So we were camping and um, and I think I remember hearing Blur and Green Day there, among others. So it was all these cool alternative British bands. Nice. All right. Sounds fun. Good first memory. Um, all right. Next, uh, beach or mountains? What do you prefer? Well, if beach extends to the ocean, then I'll take that because I'm an avid scuba diver. Um, uh, yeah, I taught diving for many years and uh, I love being in the ocean. I totally agree. All right. Um, have you been to more countries or states? More countries. Um, my kids bought me this map where we put in pins of where we've been uh, and where we're going to go. And so I counted those up yesterday and I think I'm at 50 three countries Ooh. and 40 oh no i've forgotten what it was now i think it was 45 states might have been well, 44. Being, being at 53 countries states will never catch up that's right they just they just i won't. know i get to stop there right <laughs> stop them. all right maybe appropriate to this conversation what is your favorite color of hydrogen it's a ridiculous question andrew hydrogen is a colorless <laughs> gas of course i refuse to subscribe to the color system and prefer to talk about carbon intensity. So I like low carbon hydrogen. All right, I'll see what color low carbon is. <laughs> um, all right, finally, what is the best sandwich? It's a grilled cheese and tomato sandwich from Sea Lane Cafe in my hometown of Worthing in England. Oh, that is definitive. I like that. Okay, well, thank you very much. That was amazing. Um, I think the, the audience uh, certainly has a good handle on, on what, like, what you like to do. All right, so now that we know about some of your personal tastes, let's hear about some of your professional tastes. Anyone who's read your bio knows about your background in reservoir geophysics and techno-economic modeling. Okay, I'm still not really sure what techno-economic modeling means, but um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that and how you got here from there. Okay, sure, yeah. So um, techno-economic modeling is essentially figuring out what the economics are for any technical pathway. And it doesn't even have to be in energy, actually. It could be in any uh, discipline. Uh, but when I think about it, particularly with regard to hydrogen, I might think about um, the economics of electrolytic hydrogen versus um, steam methane reforming with carbon capture and storage and figuring out all the technical pieces within each of those pathways and how those impact the economics. Got it. And so I believe you started your career at Chevron. I and did. So how have you? How how did that like inform your path to to where you are? Well, you know, I mean, I so I got my PhD at Stanford in earthquake seismology, actually. So I 
my my PhD thesis was drilling a well into the San Andreas Fault. It was a very cool project. And um, and so when I that? that sounds dangerous. I feel like there's a movie. No, about we, did that we did it. We did it. I'll share that with you. That's a, a story for another day. Um, so I I was really excited um, about joining Chevron, and I I initially worked on the technical team there. So I did lots of different types of subsurface projects, um, ranging from sort of 4D seismic of the big gas fields in Australia um, through to passive seismic monitoring of the shale fields, which were just sort of starting to uh, come into focus. And uh, because I had worked on those uh, shale fields, I was asked um, to build uh, an, an economic model to make decisions around whether or not to keep the acreage. So that's kind of how I moved from geophysics into um, economics and sort of, you know, kind of keeping my, my feet in both fields. And, you know, Chevron is an amazing company and like many big companies, uh, gave me lots of opportunities to do different things. So I worked in many different parts of Chevron and I, I saw a lot of the world, a lot of my countries uh, that I visited came from my time there. Yeah. Um, and and in in 2018, I was in the um, upstream strategy team, and we were really focused on sort of figuring out what what Chevron's decarbonization strategy should be. And I realized that this was my my passion, and had an opportunity to come back to Stanford and sort of focus on that, um, which has led me to where I am now. Awesome. Oh, that's yeah. exciting. So before we get into the meat of what the hydro economy is, let's start a, a little bigger picture. You said something to me last week when we were chatting to the effect of renewables versus fossil fuels is a false narrative. Why? I mean, isn't the great energy debate today climate versus energy security? Yeah, I, I really do believe this is a false narrative. You know, we live in this awfully polarized world where you have to put yourself in one camp or the other. And, and the truth is that, you know, neither renewables or fossil fuels is the answer in its entirety to the energy dilemma that we have, right, which is how to provide clean, affordable, reliable, secure energy. And so I um, more and more focus on bringing together people uh, from all different viewpoints to really focus on the key questions, right? How do we optimize for clean, affordable, reliable, secure? And, and the truth is, I think that, that renewables and um, fossil fuels need to work very closely together, right? So there's many um, places where we need fossil fuels to provide the reliability to the intermittent renewables. And, and if we actually embrace that, we can deploy renewables faster because we are not having to um, put in very costly energy storage systems, for example. Like so that's, done, where, like that's where I'm coming from when I say it's a false narrative, right? It's not one or the other. It's how do we optimize all of the tools that we have to get to the place that we want to get to, right? Which is the energy system of the future. Got it. And all great minds working together rather than against each other will get us there. Absolutely. Makes sense. Okay. So um, when I was in grad school, like 20 years ago, I read this book called The Hydrogen Economy. 
think that's what it was called. Uh, it sounded like the hydrogen economy was just around the corner. How naive was I? Um, so when it, when it comes to thinking about it, a hydrogen economy, um, I think the burning question that many of the folks have is, can it one day be a reality or is it going to be just 10 years away forever? Yeah, it's a great question and one that I hear a lot. And, um, you know, certainly 20 years ago when I was at Chevron, there was work going on within hydrogen. And when the oil price dropped, it was the first thing that got let go from the research portfolio because although it was very cool at that time, nobody could quite figure out, you know, where it would be applied and how it would be used. There wasn't there wasn't a clear application for it. And so we fast forward to today and it's risen back up as one of the pillars of the energy landscape. And this time it's very different because we have a clear, we know what we want to use it for, right? Which is decarbonization. So the application is very, very clear. And there really aren't any any other feasible alternatives at scale on the table, right? So when you look at decarbonization strategies, they all seem to have hydrogen, carbon capture and storage within them, right? And that's because there aren't other technologies right now that are able to do that. So I think um, the amount of money that we have recently seen deployed in hydrogen, the support from the federal government in particular, but states um, uh, across the US and, and in places like Europe, uh, a lot of focus on hydrogen, I think is all indicating that it's very different this time. Um, the technology it has been around for, in, in many cases, hundreds of years, right? Um, you know, Jules Verne predict predicted that we would run our um, energy systems off ele electrolysis. And so, I think um, I think that we're we're seeing the emergings of a real hydrogen economy. So I guess when you say that it's it's not that everything's going to be run on hydrogen, but part of the energy that we consume will be based on this technology. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I think in general, it's really um, destructive to think about one silver bullet within energy, right? There are geographic re regions where certain energy sources make a lot of sense. And there are other places where something else makes a lot of sense, right? And there are um, uh, certain sectors that are going to be able to use hydrogen and others that won't, right, for various reasons. So I think, you know, I like to think of this smorgasbord, and I think more and more, um, I, I, I think about regional solutions, right? What makes sense for this particular problem given the environment and the resources available within that area? Uh, that makes sense. You, you mentioned uh, two things that I want to explore a little bit more. You mentioned um, the different sectors that it makes sense for and then the, the regions that it makes sense for. Mm -hmm. And so when when we think of the different sectors, uh, some of the things that I've read and I think some of the things we've talked about are some of those hard to abate sectors um, like steel or ocean shipping, or you'll tell me some other ones. Are, is, is that where we need to focus our energy on hydrogen or 
you know, is, is my next, you know, SUV going to have a hydrogen uh, engine in it to, to take me wherever I want to go? Yeah, no, these are great questions. So I think, you know, the, the promise of, so, so today, let's back up a little bit, right? So yeah, yeah. today, um, you know, we use hydrogen pretty much just for refining and fertilizers. Okay, now a few other chemical processes, but that's those are the big ticket sectors. The promise of hydrogen is to decarbonize these other sectors that currently are reliant on fossil fuels and very carbon intensive. So um, you mentioned, I think, steel, cement, um, planes, right? You know, we're not going to be flying on batteries. Um, and so, you know, thinking about um, blending in hydrogen to jet fuels today to make sustainable aviation fuel that has a lower carbon footprint is one way we can decarbonize that sector today while we sort of figure out what the, the next generation of technologies are. Um, marine shipping is another really good example. It might not be hydrogen. It might be a derivative of hydrogen like ammonia or methanol. Um, but I, you know, I think as we sort of um, think about hydrogen, it's really sort of these new applications that is where the gravy's at in reducing overall emissions. You made me smile when you said we're not going to be flying around on electric planes. Somebody asked me once, Andrew, are you comfortable with electric cars? I'm like, yeah, of course I'm comfortable with electric cars, you know, for short distances and whatnot. Um, well, are you going to be comfortable with electric planes? I was like, absolutely not. They said, why? Well, I, yeah, I and said, maybe I should well, preface that. Yeah. I think, I think short, short distance, like electric planes, that there have been test flights and, and that does look promising. Yeah. It's just the idea of, you know, you know, flying from here to Asia, right? That's, that's not happening in the immediate future. Well, and, and for me, maybe someone who's a little slow to adopt technology, um, you know, if your car runs out of battery, you just kind of stop and you pull over to the side of the road. If your plane runs out of battery, you fall out of the sky. So different, different <laughs> it's, risk, it's different risk levels. Yeah, I don't, I don't it's like, true. I don't like that. It's true. I do think uh, your comment about SUVs is interesting. You know, I, um, I think we'd all sort of come to the conclusion that particularly for passenger cars, um, EVs is where it's going. And now, you know, we're starting to see some issues, right? You know, I have a Tesla and honestly, it's hard to get a parking space at work sometimes because there's so many EVs that want to charge and there's a limited number of charging stations. And this, um, you know, the infrastructure build out and the required grid expansion um, for full electric vehicle adoption it's looking like, you know, we might need some other alternatives. And I like to think of it a little bit like, um, you know, computers back in the 80s or 90s, right? So, you know, there's the PC and there's the Mac. And yeah. they both ended up with a reasonable share of the market because they're both excellent solutions. Sure. And so there's no reason that we have to go all electric, right? If we have hydrogen... Uh, whether it's through fuel cells or potentially through hydrogen combustion engines, um, that's that's a great way to decarbonize, and it it takes the pressure off the grid a little bit. Uh, and this smorgasbord approach, right? Again, sort of uh, reveals some of the benefits of doing it that way. Yeah, sure. I I was like saying that tug in cheek, but I 
I guess maybe it is actually a an an, an option out there. Um, so so you mentioned that like ninety eight percent of hydrogen today is produced for uh, well you mentioned the use is is for refining and, and fertilizers. Yeah. What maybe you didn't mention is ninety eight percent of it is produced from fossil based pathways, right? And, and currently, I don't think they're using carbon capture. So should we just add carbon capture to everything? Um, or are there better ways to produce hydrogen? It's a great question. So you're right. So so the majority of hydrogen today, so there's 100 million metric tons rounding up uh, globally and about 10 million metric tons within the US. Almost all of that is made from steam methane reforming of either natural gas or coal. So in the US, it's mostly natural gas. And, um, you know, you could put carbon capture on that. Now, of course, if you're doing carbon capture, you also want to store that carbon. So that requires that you have some way of transporting that carbon dioxide and some location where you can store it possibly in an underground reservoir. And there are plenty of places that you could do that, right? So if we think about the Gulf Coast, for example, sure. um, there's lots of fields, oil and gas fields that have been depleted and would be great candidates for carbon capture and storage. And that there's a big proposal, right, as part of the hub along the Gulf Coast to do that. Now, there's other places where that's, that's going to be it's going to be tricky to move the carbon dioxide and you know if you're inland somewhere you might not have appropriate reservoirs to right. store that in so you know the scale right now 10 million metric tons of hydrogen um so for you know for every one ton of hydrogen um you get 10 tons of co2 so there's a good uh rule of thumb for you um and and that's sizable, but it's it's. I'm sorry, that's from the the steam methane reforming using net gas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Not cool, but not. And so, cool. so so that's basically to yeah. say that that's a significant amount of CO2, but but in the great scheme of yeah. all the CO2 emissions that we have to deal with, I'm not sure this is where we should focus all of our attention right now on the existing hydrogen market. Got so it. moving forward, I think there are places where there's available gas where it makes sense to do steam methane reforming, and there are close reservoirs where we could store CO2 from those processes. And there are other places where it's gonna make more sense to build new plants because we're going into new markets. We need additional hydrogen um, and, and we might choose a different pathway, right? We might choose um, uh, water electrolysis, uh, if there's available renewable energy, or we might choose something like pyrolysis, which doesn't produce carbon dioxide, it produces solid carbon. So again, I think this is gonna be like regional solutions that are appropriate for the resources available and the market um, in that region. So that makes me think that this seven hydrogen hub platform that has been designed by the IRA actually had some thought behind it, not just like a government, here you go, do seven hubs. And that each hub has a, each hub is regional and has a fit for purpose situation. I mean, is that, is that the right way to think, think about that's exactly right. And hubs? each hub is, you know, the, the, um, has, um, participants from 
industry, um, the government, academia, right, who have come together and really looked at this. And so, you know, four out of the seven hubs are um, fossil fuel based, which tells you something, right, about where they see the resources and the economics for these projects. It's actually really cheap to add carbon capture and storage. It adds about 20 cents a kilogram to hydrogen. So if, if it's $1.50, say, per kilogram for uh, just regular plain old SMR, you can add 20 cents um, and that will get you carbon capture and storage. Now, of course, there's other issues, right? There's safety, uh, regulatory liability issues that um, sure. don't make may this hold, sense. But economically, bit. right, that is still uh, definitely um, more feasible than some of the other more expensive pathways. Got it. So uh, you bring up uh, the economics of, of hydrogen and hydrogen production. I know you recently uh, co-authored a paper in Nature Nature Communications. Yes. The, yeah, publication. And, and that looked at these different... Um, ways to produce hydrogen and, and which was best. Maybe you could give us some of sort of the the insights there, because in the end, we want to, how, how do you make money in this, right? Like that that's what's going to drive investment. And so is, is it regional or is there sort of an overarching theme that that listeners should take away from that? Well, so, so in our paper, Andrew, you know, what we really tried to do was think about all of the value measures that we're trying to solve for. So cost is definitely one, but carbon has a cost associated with it, right? So we said, you know, if you take any of these pathways and you make them net zero, which means doing some kind of um, abatement for any emissions from that process, and you include those costs in, how do these all stack up? And, um, you know, not surprisingly, um, when you look at, at, at the emissions profiles, you know, I'm going to use the colors, even though I don't want to, but green hydrogen um, from electrolysis and blue hydrogen from steam methane reforming with carbon capture and storage are actually of similar cost. Um, and uh, um, you have to ensure that the upstream emissions of methane from the for the blue pathway are kept at a very low threshold, which I definitely think is possible. We work on that a lot at the Stanford Natural Gas Initiative. The other, you know, really interesting conclusion from this paper, right, is we're, we're building projects today with the grid that we have today, with the resources that we have available. But those, the grid is going to evolve, right? More and more renewables get deployed every day. And I worry a lot that if we require today this perfectly clean power source to make hydrogen through renewables um, that we are going to limit how that market grows and it doesn't make any sense when we know that the grid is going to evolve and become cleaner so i would contend and this sort of ties in with some of the um the ira um debates on on 45b which is the oh, hydrogen right. tax code right yeah. um you know, I, I would contend that we should plug into the grid, make as much hydrogen as we can to grow the market, recognizing that it might not be perfect, but let's not let perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah. And we will see 
you know, an evolution in the grid, which will translate to an evolution in the cleanliness of the hydrogen with time as well, if we if we do that. So, so again, it sounds like you're a proponent of let's not overthink this. We 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 know the metrics around each way to produce. We know how we want to reduce carbon. It it's not going to be perfect today, but it can be better. And so, why don't we take that better step? Yep. And there's plenty of, um, you know, there's plenty of evidence um, and studies that have been done that show, for example, that uh, if you take a, a blue hydrogen pathway using natural gas, there are potentially emissions associated with that sure. if the gas, if there is leakage in the upstream, um, methane leakage. But but as long as as long as that is, you know at the benchmark levels required for the oil and gas industry. So let's say we get it down to 1% 1, 1 or less of leakage everywhere, which is totally feasible. The benefits of using that hydrogen are significantly better than if we just combust fossil fuels and stick with the status quo. So That's it's not perfect, but it's right. way better than the alternatives that we have right now. Um, so there's a question that came in uh, that's near and dear to my favorite color of hydrogen, which is pink. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. And and I, I wanted to sort of run it by you before we ran out of time today. And, and it's um, it's about it's about using nuclear energy to to generate um, hydrogen. And they wanted to understand autothermal reforming. And is that a better technology uh, that increases carbon capture or reduces carbon intensity? Okay. So so autothermal reforming is um, actually uses um, natural gas for the most part um, and is similar to steam methane reforming, except that we add more oxygen essentially. Um, so for larger plants, um, it's, it, 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 it uh, produces a cleaner stream of CO2 that makes carbon capture much easier and more efficient. So you're basically capturing more carbon. It is more expensive, which is why those plants need to be of scale, right, in order to make it cost effective. Um, I'm a, going to nuclear now. I'm a big fan um, of nuclear. I think, you know, when we, when we really look at the big picture, if we want um, low carbon energy, nuclear, and particularly with some of the new technologies around um, small modular reactors, um, is, is a great way to get us there and and certainly i think you know either using that energy directly uh so into the grid producing electricity or potentially um using it to make hydrogen are both uh going to be part of the solution i would think i, I hope so the 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 red tape of getting these nuclear plants up and running just seems like such a headache and i like to think that there's reform coming but um so I think we'll there's more and more recognition um, that, um, you know, nuclear, the nuclear of today is not the nuclear of yesterday. Right. And that many of the um, issues and concerns around safety, for example, are not applicable to some of the new technologies, right? There are ways mm. to do this um, that are um, safe and really um 
optimize for those parameters we were just talking about on energy, right? So it's right. affordable and clean. Well I, well, I hope that momentum continues. Um, all right, well, we're almost here at the bottom of the hour, um, but there, there are a few things we didn't get to around infrastructure and whatnot, so we'll have to have a follow-up conversation. But, sure. but the last question I wanted to to leave with is, you know, you, you, you sit on, you have multiple seats, whether it's on advisory boards or, or in other organizations, um, and you see so many different technologies as they're being developed today. What, what's the most promising tech um, that you see that could be disruptive or disrupt the ways we decarbonize the grid or globe? Yeah, you know, so, so when I think about, um, technology, uh, you know, I want to, I want things that are going to scale right so so how do we really scale these things so one thing that really comes to mind is um some work uh that's being done at stanford to build electrolyzers that run off seawater so imagine if the availability of water was not an issue and we had electrolyzers that were able to withstand um, the conditions associated with seawater so yeah. I'm really excited about um, technologies like that that I think are real game changers. I also really um, like the idea of um, maybe making hydrogen through something like pyrolysis and creating a solid carbon product that is useful. So imagine if we were able to make hydrogen and the byproduct was super useful carbon nanotubes that we could make buildings out of right oh yeah that'd be cool look yeah. at that so these are these are you know the 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 work that's going on today that is going to be impactful you know in the future down the road but i i get, think yeah. you know these are the visionary ideas i think that that it passes the sniff test right it's like yeah what if we sequestered the carbon in our buildings and you look at places like india there's going to be no limit to the construction there and and they have an emissions problem so maybe we can you know kill two birds with one stone that that would that would be fantastic well look we're at time naomi thank you so much for uh spending the morning here uh with me i really appreciate it and your insights and um for, uh, for those of you listening in, tune in next month uh, where we'll be talking about battery storage. All right. Take care, Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Andrew. Have a great Thanks. month.